On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're delighting in a little school romance in Heartstopper on Netflix, going period Groundhog Day in Life After Life on BBC One, attempting to bring a feminist perspective to movie making in Chivalry on Channel 4, watching Julia Roberts blow the Watergate scandal wide open in Gaslit on Stars Play, and, and heading back to the 80s with the long-awaited return of Netflix's Russian Doll. And if all that doesn't sound like we've been busy enough, Sarah Soleimani stops by to talk chivalry with Boyd, and Beth sits down with Sienna Miller and Rupert Friend to wax lyrical about Anatomy of a Scandal. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to this very very busy episode of the Pilot TV <laughs> podcast. It is a momentous day today, not just because Boyd harassed us into reviewing five shows <laughs> on this week's podcast, not just because of that, uh, and, and we have no less than three special guests, but because today is Beth's birthday. Woo-hoo! Beth Day, if you will. Happy birthday, Beth. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. And a special thank you to uh, social media editor Sophie Butcher, who has made my day by asking the pilot pod listeners to send gifts of my favorite shows. So there's been a lot of Gilmore's, a lot of Satellite Splats, a lot of Glow. So yeah, it's been a lovely moving thread of all my favorite bits, which uh, I might just start watching gifts instead of television. That might be the future, to be honest. That sounds perfect. Um, yeah. But yeah, feeling good, feeling like an old crone. But very nice. Grateful very to be nice. Here. It's good. <laughs> we're, we're better to spend your birthday than with us, yes. the people that you love the most. Sure. Um, of course, sure. despite. Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure, says Ben. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you want to say that, yeah. <laughs> now, we'll say it is your birthday, but you're not at a luxury resort this week. Uh, however,. Boyd has managed the next best thing. So it's not his birthday, but he does come to us via the miracle of modern communications. Uh, beaming in from a hotel room in New York City. How is the Big Apple, Boyd? It is uh, excellent, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Um, it's going to be it's going to be eighty degrees today. Actually, what's that in actual it, proper temperature? Hot. It's fucking hot. So um, it was a beautiful day yesterday. After my um, professional um, uh, what's the word uh, duties were met, yep, I went to yep. Central Park and it was glorious. Um, and uh, it's just been yeah, it's been fa- it's fantastic. But I haven't been. I, I used to come to New York every like once or twice a year, you know, until the pandemic. So it's my first time back since then, and it's and it's as glorious as ever. I have to say. Oh, good. I'm glad you're having fun. I could I should probably just, for the sake of our (laughs) listeners, call out both of you for your lack of dedication to this podcast because it is Beth's birthday. It is Boyd in New York. So when I suggested doing this podcast at (laughs) eight o'clock in the morning for my own convenience, which would have been been 3 a.m. for Boyd, and on your birthday, Beth, it would have been the beginning of your birthday. I don't understand why neither of you went for it. I mean, I I was up disappointed, obviously, at three in the morning. (laughs) Um, Thought you were. Boyd after hours. Yeah. 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 But um, Beth could have could have at least you know pulled all the yeah, stuff out. That's on me, guys. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm selfish. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happened. Shocked and appalled. I'm shocked and appalled. So we've got this weird hybrid thing where Beth's at home, yeah. Boyd's in New York, and I am in the office in the studio, but on my own on a laptop, <laughs> but with the Pilot TV branding behind me. So that's yeah. uh, that's nice. That's good. Times. I'm, I'm all enjoying good times. this. We're on yeah. we're on brand. But you know, assuming. You have had time between birthdays and travelling to New York to watch some TV. What 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 have you been watching? I'm right now watching. <laughs> um, if I, as I do, this is my American um, trip uh, ha- ritual, which is I watch live with Kelly um, on ABC um, every time I come to New York. You, back in the day, it was live with Regis Philbin and Kathy Gifford, and um, it's like this show. It's like this morning meets chat show. It's a kind of American institution. 
um, and it's quite kitsch and campy yeah. and theatrical and like you know. But now it's just um, it, it's kind of extraordinary good fun. Hugh Laurie was on it yesterday, for example. Um, Ryan Seacrest is the co-host these days with Kelly Ripper, and Ryan Seacrest is just like Mr. Showbiz in all kinds of ways and kinds of kind of funny ways. So I've been watching a lot of live with, with, with Kelly and Ryan. Um, I also watched a lot of a show. That um, again, that I'm working on over here, that I'm interviewing people for here, which I can't say because that's the secret reason I'm here. So I won't go into that. That's kind of pointless thing for me to say. Um, <laughs> and on the day I flew out, this was on the day I flew out, which was on Monday, right? In the morning, I hosted a thing for the BBC, um, a Q&A, a live Q&A for um, Tom Basden's new show on BBC One. Tom Basden of um, Afterlife fame. He plays Ricky Gervais's brother-in-law in Afterlife. And he's got a new sitcom out, um, not this week, the following week, which we may or may not review. I, I have anything to do with it, Will, but I know what James is like when it comes to mainstream <laughs> comedies. Um, it's really funny. Um, but so I literally, it was at the, it was at the White City House in, um, in, in oh, White yeah. City. So I hosted this thing at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning in front of a, an audience with the whole cast, um, including Le Catherine Parkinson's in it, um, uh, Alison Steadman's in it, absolute legend. So it's, it, you know, incredible people. And then I had a car waiting for me to whiz me to the airport straight afterwards <laughs> to Heathrow and then where I got on the plane to come here. So it was all quite dramatic. Um, but here we go. Coming up the week after next is really good, and I strongly recommend it. And that's about what I've been watching. Oh, Shining Girls, I should mention, I had to watch. Have I said that again? I watched more of that, and it's um, we'll be reviewing that properly next week, though, I think. But it's one more chance for me to plug my interview with Elizabeth Moss mm. in the current issue of Empire, which is a career high for me because she's an absolute legend. Well, we may be having Elizabeth Moss on this show uh, next yes. week. Yeah, I, I tweeted out um, that I'd interviewed her and I called it Elizabeth Miss in the tweet <laughs> because it, it, it cause obviously it corrects it Moss to Miss in, instantly and I didn't notice and obviously I tweeted instantly to my 80,000 thing and I'm banging on about how Elizabeth Miss Oh, I love the way you just yeah, dropped the number in there which slides his number of followers Oh, my, my 80,000 I, mean, I, I am an influencer um, Boy, yeah. I think you owe it to me and Beth yeah. to tweet out telling your followers to follow us as well I think you owe that to <laughs> us I mean, that's a no. bit No, no, Beth will not It's a bit undignified, isn't it? Twitter's already a bit of a yeah. I mean, it, Elon, Musk, Elon Musk will, have, will be owning me by next week Oh, my God um, But, uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, Elizabeth Miss, and um, uh, I completely yeah didn't realise that I called Elizabeth Miss, but Elizabeth did she object? Um, not yet, not as far as I'm aware. She's just she's drawing a veil over it, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, fair enough. Uh, so that's that. That's my um, New York based live with Kelly and etc. <laughs> Beth, how about you? Oh, just a shit ton of Better Call Saul. We had to. Oh, yeah. We didn't have to. That's that's strong wording. We we did a. I mean, a, we did a special. Yeah. So, so I should I should preface this by saying so we are not reviewing the final season of mm. Medical Saw this week. Not least of all because I've not watched the preceding seasons of Medical Saw, <laughs> but uh, also because I think it's still embargoed, or you haven't seen the episodes, or something like we that. Seen so, the episodes, yeah, no, so, which it. makes it very difficult to review things in my experience. So uh, instead of that, you two and Chris Hewitt have recorded a Better Call Saul. Special preview appreciation <laughs> broadcast thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cool soul club. I think yeah. is, is yeah. what we did, and that is going out on the Empire Spoiler Specials subscription podcast channel. If anyone wants to listen to that, you can subscribe to that empireonline.com slash spoiler specials. Uh, but that'd be fun. So you, so have you finished, Beth? Have you, are you now mm -hmm. you're up to date. You've you finished so, your yeah, we marathon. We're on Thursday today. We recorded yesterday, Wednesday at half past three in the afternoon our time i finished watching it at 8 a.m yesterday morning uh so yes that right up to the line with that one wow. 
<laughs> so I've just been, yeah, again, just absolutely mainlining Better Call Saul, which is a tough thing to really like push into your eyeballs for like long periods of time <laughs> as always Crimea River but uh it was obviously extraordinary and so that's that's what I finished I guess we can put that through uh something else I want to shout out that I've been watching weekly is Pachinko I've been sticking with it and it is absolutely I feel like I've said it before on this uh podcast but it's just just stunning beautiful beautiful it is filmmaking, I guess. Uh, it's just, yeah, but but absolutely beautiful. Uh, I'm really really invested in that show, uh, and that's been it this week because we've <laughs> we've got so many shows to so get many shows, <laughs> so many shows. Uh, but that didn't stop me watching some stuff this week. So while we're on the Apple TV Plus appreciation thread here, uh, I will say I finished Slow Horses, mm. which I enjoyed enormously and thought it got better as it went along. And I obviously can't talk about that because I'm going to ruin it for anyone and it hasn't actually finished airing on Apple yet. But the biggest revelation for me about the final episode, and this is not plot related in any form, is that they've already shot all of season two of Slow Horses. It's already in no. the can. And the reason I know this is because at the end of the final episode, there's a next season on Slow Horses oh. and they show you a whole ton of wow. footage from season two. Wow. And that's not a spoiler because on Twitter yesterday, uh, they, it was it was it broke, like people talked about it, the fact that they have in fact already shot season two of Slow Horses and there are other seasons planned. So this is now an ongoing concern. Uh, and it's joyous. I loved every minute of it. I thought it was really, really good. It was twisty. It was turny. Some great performances in there. It was so much fun. Chris and Scott Thomas is amazing. Uh, yeah, it's 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 great. Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, obviously, yes. It's brilliant as well. Uh, as is Jack Loudon. Like, everyone mm. in it is, is really good. But it's yeah. really funny and it's interesting and it goes places you wouldn't think. But yeah, I thought Slow Horses was great. I also late last night, decided to bite the bullet, or the phaser, if you will, and push on through to the end of Discovery Season 4. So I finished it, I got to the end of it, and, you know, you know how I said earlier on, like, you know, I was a bit bored, but it might rally towards the end, like, actually, it might be building into some big, big crescendo. It wasn't. Um... Oh God, I was quite bored. Like, and it, like we're at the, the climactic episodes, and I'm just like, I don't know how you've managed to turn... Mm. The end point of this entire season into a bunch of you sitting around in a circle, basically holding hands and having a chat. It's like, this is not high octane entertainment. <laughs> and I just, I don't know what's wrong with that show. I find the characters bland. I find the stories a bit bland. I just can't bring myself to love it. And you know how painful that is for me, given that it's Star Trek. And given that Picard is coming at me from the other side with problems, yeah. like, I, I'm, I'm having a real existential issue with all this stuff. It's not, it's not a good time for me. It's not oh, good. Poor James. You were yeah. I, forgot, I totally forgot to mention one thing. So Doctor Who. Doctor Who, which would have gone out. Oh, the special. Yeah, the, the special. I watched yeah. the special. Um, it would have gone out on Easter Sunday. And I really enjoyed it. It's really good fun. The Sea Devils are back. I love the Sea Devils. I didn't love them. I just, I remember very, the Sea Devils, I think I've mentioned this on this before, one of my yes. clearest early memories of watching. You do the, love a Sea Devil. I love a Sea Devil. But the thing to, that struck me is Jodie Whittaker. It's her penultimate episode. Um, just one more Jodie Whittaker adventure to come at the end of this year, or autumn slash end of the year. I think it will be end of the year. And that's it. And just a reminder of how great she is. She, you know, she gets to do everything emotionally, um, adventuringly. Um, uh, she's just great fun and she can switch on a dime from one, you know, from one emotion to another. So it's just a, as a reminder of how great she is um, in the role and how sad I will be sad to see her go I have to say and also it just struck me that we're going to have to find out who the new Doctor is quite soon because you know she'll be regenerating 
you know, in a final episode. And that has, at the moment, you know, it, it, the, the way these things work, usually there's some kind of announcement, some kind of big announcement quite soon, mm. you know, well in time for the final, the, the, for the final, her final episode. So I'm fascinated to know how that's going to all turn out. Aren't we all, boys? Yes. Aren't we well, all? As you as a major Whovian. You should switch. Yeah. This whole Star Trek disco <laughs> hell yeah. you're going through, you wouldn't have to go through it. I mean, I like Star Trek as well, but I'm not as obsessed as you are. You wouldn't have to be so obsessed if you just went back and just focused more on Doctor Who. Uh, I wouldn't have to watch Mr. Saru trying to get frisky with the Romulan ambassador. It's just like, oh. what, what, where, why, why is this happening? Yeah, no. I just, yeah. Just no. Um, but hey, look, Strange New Worlds is coming up. So I'm, I'm hoping that, yeah. that that will, that will mend everything for me. That will, <laughs> that will sort it all out. Like it, it, it will bring me back to the fold. It could happen. But those are not the only shows I've been watching. The other one I have been watching is Anatomy of a Scandal, which I watched all the mm. way through. So I uh, really enjoyed it when we started watching it. And I watched the first two compulsively and then had to stop because we had to record the episode and didn't go back to it because many other shows to watch. But one of the nights this week, I thought, oh, I'll just watch another episode and just plowed on through to the end because it is it has that kind of crack quality to it doesn't it where you just can't stop it's so addictive and it's an interesting show and i loved it and i i was texting with terry about this while i was watching i was like how good is this show she's like oh my god how good is this show because she did sienna miller for uh, I want to say L. Yeah, it was, was it L. L? Yeah. It was L. Yeah, she yeah. did Sienna Miller for L. She really loved the show as well. And then I went to Metacritic. It's got like a 48 rating. Like it's been panned. And it seems that people have really objected to the tone of the show because it is quite David E. Kelly. You know, it has a touch of the undoing about it. It's quite frothy. It's utterly daft. Trashy. And I'll, Use the word. It's trashy. I don't know that it, it is. is. I don't know <laughs> I, that I, it I'm is. I'm fine with it. It is though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not trashy in the way like, because I obviously, I get quite snooty about the trashy shows that you make me watch Boyd but this this for me felt like premium it felt expensive it felt classy with a touch of trash so it yeah, was, it was yeah. a better, better class of trash 100% um, but I really enjoyed it but I do wonder whether it's because the tone of it given the subject matter which is essentially rape and sexual assault that that somehow that tone and that subject matter going together mm. is what rubbed people up the wrong way that they felt it needed to be dramatic it needed to have real gravitas weight it needed to be harrowing it needed to be brutal uh to do justice to that storyline and for me i'm glad it wasn't because i wouldn't have been able to watch it if it had been so this enabled me to actually enjoy the show which is nice because even though it has you know scenarios which are very very upsetting mm. they're not shot in a way that's designed to traumatize the audience they convey the emotional heft of them without like bludgeoning you with it but it it goes left it goes right it takes interesting character turns i thought the way it dealt with privilege was very interesting as well uh and i think sienna miller's character was 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 a standout for me early on but then michelle dockery really came to the fore i thought as that show went on uh and yes okay i'll grant you some of the twists and terms are shall we say a little bit daft yes but i really like them i really went with it and i was i, I enjoyed every minute of it um uh, yeah i think I, I know what you mean about the, the the i think with these things i think you can you can address any absolutely any issue any storyline any um subject matter no matter how extreme and dark it's all about how you go about it and i think this established from the start and i'm going to use the word again that it's got a pulpy, pulpy, that's a better word, a pulpy yes, slash yes, trashy, rather than trashy pulpy, yes. quality to it, unashamedly so. That's what makes, and I think you could, I, I, I think people are, I think it's an example of people feeling they should be annoyed by a, a show adopting a pulpy mm. tone when it's dealing with though, with rape and sexual assault, et cetera, rather than actually being an actual response to the show. Do you know what I mean? That's my feeling. Mm. People feel they should be slightly uptight about it, but actually the show is made by women. It's It's produced by women. It's directed by women. It's you know, and so 
I think the whole thing's a bit of a red herring. Like that whole, you yeah. know, it, it's... Okay. Yeah, that's my feeling. It, it is very propulsive and it was very much... I think this is the case with you, wasn't it, James, that you were like, I, I just had to watch the second one. Oh, and yeah. That was, yeah, I couldn't stop. That was couldn't the case stop. It's it like just Pringles. had to stop the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby Pringles. <laughs> Bobby Pringles. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. I think it, I, I think it was, it was, it was a really, really enjoyable show, which is something I didn't expect from the subject matter. I was expecting it to be something that I would endure, as opposed to something I would enjoy. But I, yeah. I really did enjoy it, and um, that handily provides a rather lovely segue into what we're going to do next, because a couple of weeks after it came out, we are going to talk to the stars of. Anatomy of a Scandal, more specifically, Beth, you are. Uh, so you heard me banging on about it, obviously just now, but we reviewed Anatomy of a Scandal a couple of weeks ago. But this week we've managed to catch up with Sienna Miller and Rupert Friend. Uh, and Beth had a good old chat with them about the show. Hi, guys. Hi, hi. 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 Hello. Lovely to speak with you both. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were when you first read the script for this show. I got sent a pile of six scripts, which is quite a daunting sight. Mm. And of course, the names on the front of it were David E. Kelly and Melissa James Gibson. So I was quite excited to have a look, but I actually read all of them in one sitting um, because they were so propulsive and they had so many twists and turns that I didn't see coming. And I understand, as we all do, that in order to make a good six part drama, it needs to be compelling in the way that this really was. And it tackles really important and prevalent themes. Rupert, what did you think? Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rupert. Well, it's funny you should say that. We, no, we're not doing our voice. Oh, we're not doing it. Isn't this a vocal medium thing? It is. Do you want to do a performance? Go on. Well, it's funny you should say that because when I first read the script, I threw it across the room and I said, no, I shan't play this man who does this awful thing. That's what I thought. Okay. And you picked it up, I guess. And, yes, I picked uh, it back up. And oh I thought God. you must finish what you started, boy. Remember what they told you in the army. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, the jet lag's kicked in, I think, for Rupert. <laughs> he doesn't really and sound then, like that. <laughs> and, Sienna, you mentioned David E. Kelly. You mentioned Melissa James Gibson. Could I ask what your relationships were like with their work ahead of starting this project? Well, I grew up with Ali McBeal and I loved it. Um, Me too. Huge Michelle Pfeiffer fan, so I thought, oh, he Me must too. be a cool guy. Yeah. Then, of course, like the rest of the world, binged Big Little Lies and The Undoing. And this is his first time working at Netflix, and so that felt like a moment. And mm. and I think that in... He's just... there, And Melissa's obviously added her own brilliant touch as well, but they both... House of Cards, I loved. Mm. They're both just really, really high up. Um, Was I attached when you got the script? You were not, mm. no. But obviously, as soon as you were, I... It got even more better. Well, that's when I started to question whether or not I wanted to be a part of it. But actually, you until that moment, be? Brad Pitt. Yeah, it would have been better, actually. Yeah. He would have been good. <laughs> he would have been good. Well, you were very brave for taking this part in spite of Brad Pitt not being I'm joking, part of this, this project. I hope yeah. that comes across. <laughs> It's all jokes. I hope that comes across. It's yeah, just fun. I'm just having fun. <laughs> having a um, time. I mean, they are two incredibly, incredibly complicated characters, but you don't see what you get with them for quite a long time into the series. I mean, what was what was your in for playing them both as individuals and then as a couple as well? I, yeah. I, I found it really interesting because Sophie is, she's so specifically that type of woman that I think, 
I've seen, we've all seen growing up in England. She's incredibly contained. She's very composed. She's very stoic. She the opposite of Sienna. Quite acerbic. <sighs> Actually, the opposite of me, which which felt like a real departure. But I, I was keen to play somebody English. And I thought that that kind of containment was something I hadn't ever explored. I'm always quite emotional and open in the things that I've done in the past. Um, and this felt like a very different type of character. So there was no in really other than reading the book that Sarah Vaughan had written that was that was really spent so much time in each character's interior. A lot of the work was done there and we used that as a as a real Bible, as a jumping off point for sure. And then I look at, you know, Tory wives and um and and extremely posh, well bred English women and take little bits from here and there, but there wasn't one specific person I based it on. No, of course. And Rupert, I imagine a, a very difficult task for you as well. Like kind of what, what, how did you approach this character? Yeah, I mean, this is this was a guy who I don't think any of us particularly warmed to when you read the script. You know, the, the scandal of the affair aside, it's, you know, a very small echelon of society that has that kind of privilege and power um, and that elite world in which he moves. So trying to understand the way that he saw the world rather than the way that we saw him was key to it for me. And then I guess with with the pair of you, I mean, you have so many, you ultimately, what you see on screen is these two characters sort of bringing out the worst of each other in some parts. I mean, what was it like to kind of work through that together as a, as a kind of acting couple? I mean, fortunately, we really get along extremely well and became very close friends. We were dealing with such intense subject matter every day and it was a heavy space to sit in, um, as you've just heard by Rupert's ridiculous beginning to this podcast. Mm. We found our levity quite mm. easily mm. in the middle of these mm. intense takes. But it was it was hard and it required trust and um you know, I think I think it's it was harder for for Sophie's character because the knocks keep coming. I mean, there's this shock after shock after shock, and um, we had a fantastic director, S. J. Clarkson, who really was navigating and guiding us through all of that mess, um, and also very willing to let us laugh and join in laughing when we needed to. But there were days of of deep intensity, of course there were, and and moments where we, we were pretty quiet because it was just hard, wasn't it? Yeah. Of course. I mean, I wanted to ask some more about SJ, who brings such a tense and it is at times it's like watching a thriller. At times it almost feels like you're watching like a horror film, like watching these characters' worlds kind of fall apart in front of you. Um, yeah. Could I, could I hear a little bit more about what that was like to work around on sets with her? Well, SJ is brilliant at many things, but one of the things that she really focused on was the way that people remember the same event differently. And mm. so she clearly delineated the fact that this version of events, there is no objective version. There's only multiple subjective versions of it, which I thought was super interesting. And her techniques with the flashbacks and the way when you remember something and you're suddenly there and we've all, we know that expression in my mind's eye, I was back there or, you know, and we, and we tend to sort of imagine the place very vividly. And I thought she created that visually in a very strong and unique way. And in fact, apparently David E. Kelly was so impressed. He said, I'm going to steal from you for the rest of my career, which considering he's one of the best legal drama writers going is that's quite a high compliment. She also added the, which I think is so impactful, the kind of metaphor at the end of each episode, which was her idea. So episode one, Rupert's punched and it's 
it's a metaphor for how he's feeling or Sophie's falling through the, the roof of the old Bailey. All of that was creative decisions. And I think that her very stylized way of directing elevates this. I think you could have told this story in a simple linear way and it would have worked. It was that propulsive. But she made it really deep, I think, and psychological. Um, and she shoots beautifully. I think London looks like a James Bond film, which I'm thrilled about because it can sometimes look a little bit dreary. And she she shoots it really beautifully. I mean, you've mentioned these these big moments at the end of each episode, and obviously it comes with uh, so many twists and turns. I wondered what are some of the reactions that you've had to the show so far. People have been bingey, bin, yeah, binge-arama. <laughs> Everyone's sort Binge-tastic. of like, I tried to watch one, and then I before I knew it, it was two in the morning, and I'd seen all of them. Which is all you want, really, as a reaction. Yeah, I mean, neither great. of us read any reviews. No, or Jenna barely reads, to be I can't, honest. I can't actually read, but Rupert reads the scripts I get to me yeah. now in I that send them voice in a voice that he demonstrates me- to you. To, no, uh, I, th- I think with that a the, recommendation. the thing that the most people have said is that they couldn't stop watching it, which is what we were all hoping to make. Mm-hmm. And then if you have reactions to your character specifically, have you had people sort of come up to you with, with kind of reads or have they responded kind of personally to some of the stuff that they've watched on the screen? Well, obviously no one's seen it yet because the, the only people that have seen it really are the press and, and you know, close family. But I, I imagine once it comes out on the 15th, we'll probably have a yeah. bit more of that experience. Jenna's daughter was rooting for my character. She fast forwarded a lot of it. Obviously, it's not appropriate <laughs> for a nine year old. But yes, yeah, yeah. she's seen bits. I mean, obviously, she's fan of Rupert in general. It. it wouldn't be good parenting, but it worked. Okay, if, she's watched a little if bit. If she had she seen kept it, popping she in, but. would have been a great big supporter of my character. <laughs> Um, what, what is what I did find interesting actually is that some there are a couple of people who have who have seen it that I know who are not convinced that you know are, are pretty convinced of Rupert's character's innocence and I was shocked by that because to me it's very clearly not the case mm. but that made me excited because you want to make something polarizing that doesn't just spoon feed you facts but because SJ shows it from so many different angles I think there are going to be people that I can't really understand but that who are advocating for a different outcome and that should incur some really healthy arguments and and thoughts you know in interior thoughts and hopefully people will look at the structures of the world that we're living in right now and maybe question them more than they have in the past it's it we're not trying to change the world we're actors telling a story that we want to be dramatic and propelling but it does touch on themes that I think are just so relevant today. Um, I think that leads quite nicely in, into my next question, which is, I guess, what are you hoping that people would take away from watching this show? Well, I echo what Sienna said. I think it's a conversation starter. I think it's it'd be great if, you know, within a family there were differing views on what the events that, that they go down, how, however we might feel about it. It's the idea of a way into a conversation that's probably been long overdue. And I think it it also highlights how just how difficult it is to prosecute mm. rape. And it's shocking. You know, the statistics are really pretty dismal. And I wonder if that will be something that, that people think about, which I think they need to. It certainly made me think. I mean, this finds you both at such an interesting juncture in your small screen careers. You've both been in some powerhouse telly already. You're both going on to huge things. Sienna, you with extrapolations and obviously Rupert, you're off to a galaxy far, far away very soon. <laughs> I was wondering what drives you to a small screen project at this stage in, in your careers? I'm just excited to be in things that people want to watch. I've only done one other limited series, The Loudest Voice, and it was really nice to have people 
come up and say, I really enjoyed that show, I tend to make really small independent cinema that the seven people that watch might appreciate. But I think I'm just ready to be, you know, to be in things that, that people see. And this is how people really watch, you know, the world has changed. Film is somewhat obsolete unless it's enormous. It's such a gamble. And I, and I think, um, I personally love a six part drama. I don't have the patience to sit with a seven season, a seven year kind of thing. I just, I, I want to, and I know that they're brilliant, but this suits me, A, as an actor, just because I can't commit to anything for seven years. And B, um, I think it feels in a way like a long film. You get more time to explore things that you don't in cinema. That being said, I still love a movie. Yeah, I think that also I think the lines are blurring increasingly between what constitutes a movie versus a TV show versus a limited, you know, something like this that's of this quality. It sort of feels to me like a, a big bumper long movie. Yeah. Um, and as Sienna said, it's not the kind of thing where we'll be back next year. You know, it's, it is a contained thing. Um, and yeah, the quality of the collaborators, I'd rather that that was kept high rather than it be in a specific medium or another. Well, I look forward to seeing you both in more of these moving forward. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank, thank you for having us. Right, that was Sienna Miller and Rupert Friend. And we are not going to do a listener question this week because otherwise we will never leave this podcast <laughs> because it's going to be too long as it is. So let us dive straight into this week's news and find out what has been going on. Who wants to begin? Should we talk about Stranger Things? Let's talk about Stranger Things. Yeah. That trailer looked like four different shows <laughs> rolled into one. That was such a discombobulated trailer. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck was going on. Hopper's back, though. That's exciting. There's lots of hair metal, which I'm also very here for. <laughs> I'm glad they're just like, yeah, the kids are older now. They're, they're just older. Just deal with it. They're just very much like, yeah, these are, these are essentially adults at this stage. Because you can't, you can't stop them growing up, for goodness sake. So it's good that they've kind of lent into it and just been like, yeah, here we go. Exciting, though. It's my take. I didn't see it, which is going to be a theme of this week's news, where there have been a lot of trailers for a lot of things, and I have seen none of them. I've not <laughs> so, seen most of them. <laughs> right, okay. So that was a Stranger Things trailer. There was also a trailer for The Lincoln Lawyer, which is coming to Netflix, okay. which I'm sure looked good because i enjoy the I like book this game and i enjoy the film except the guy in it is not matthew mcconaughey so that's going to bother me but other than that i'm sure it's going to be brilliant but what's most interesting about that of course is that it is on netflix which means that netflix as we kind of know own the rights to the character of mickey haller who lest we forget is harry bosch's half brother which means we can never have the you know bosch mickey haller crossover which we have been waiting for so i'm slightly disappointed about that right but that also segues nicely into the next story because as we all know Bosch Legacy the Bosch spin-off is coming soon and it's coming to IMDB TV except it is IMDB TV no longer no because they have rebranded IMDB TV as Amazon Freevee so just to be absolutely clear Amazon Prime Video <laughs> it's actually called Prime Video because they don't really emphasize the Amazon it's just Prime Video now IMDB TV is now Amazon Freevee so you now have Prime Video no Amazon along with Amazon Freevee now I think we can all agree Freevee is a genuinely terrible name for a channel. But I do think this was actually probably a good plan because I have never met anyone who has not been utterly baffled by what IMDb TV is. So IMDb TV was Amazon's free ad-supported streaming channel. The idea was that Prime Video is the premium one that you pay for and then 
IMDb TV was the free one, which was ad-supported. So now, to make that clear, it is Amazon Freevee, so it's kind of in the name. Like, what do you think? Like, it, it's it's not catchy, but it clarifies. Yeah, it, I, I was I thought it was hilarious that they've gone from um, IMDb TV, which is like no, you know, I mean, I almost felt a reluctance to actually watch stuff on that channel because it's such a clunkily way of shoehorning the imdb you know um brand into a tv channel it seemed completely crackers to yeah. me so um then so i thought oh that's interesting they renamed it that's a good point they should do that you know that's definitely you know a good thing to do but amazon free v f-r-double-e v v double e is so kind of like i don't know it's something quite ridiculous about it isn't there and as you say there's the whole issue about we're not supposed to say amazon prime anymore we're supposed to say prime video um which by the way I don't think people even on Amazon Prime know this because, like, you know, I don't think... I, let's just say I've interviewed a lot of talent that happens to be involved in shows on Prime Video and they have no idea that it's supposed to be not called Amazon or nothing to do with Amazon. It's hilarious. But, yeah, it, generally, big picture, it was a good idea to rename IMDb TV. But, funnily enough, before it was IMDb TV, I'm pretty sure it was called something like Free Hive or something. Like, it was Free Something. Was it? Then it became IMDb TV and now it is Free V. <laughs> So it's all very right. confusing. But what people don't realise is a lot of these channels do have ad-supported brethren. So the now-famous Pluto TV is Paramount Plus's ad-supported right. non-premium version. Right. And Peacock <laughs> has one as well. I can't remember what it's called. Do you remember what it's called? Anyway, so it's there's like there's so there are is it NBC free? I can't remember. But there like this is, seems to be an ongoing model of diversifying revenue streams. So I'll get their money for their subscription services, but they're also experimenting with these ad-supported ones. And some of them are obviously pushing out similar programming. Some of them like uh, like Freevee. I need to call it on TV again. Like Freevee is is pushing out original programming. So Bosch Legacy will be Freevee only. So yeah, it's it's Amazon Freevee. Uh, <laughs> Amazon freebie. What did I call it? You just called it freebie. Freebie. Oh, I have to call it Amazon freebie. Oh, well, God, it's also complicated. There you go. Amazon freebie, home of Bosch Legacy. That is now what it's called. I hope that's clarified everything for you. You don't need to pay for it. It is ad-supported. Talking of, talking of obscure channels, though, um, well, not obscure, but shall we say not in the big, the famous, you know, like Prime, Prime Video, Netflix, Apple, etc. Stars Play announced which I don't think probably just last week after before or after we recorded our the podcast, that Tokyo Vice, which is this um, big new series that Michael Mann is directing, at least I think the first couple of episodes of, is going to be on Stars Play. And a lot of people, there's a whole massive tranche of Michael Mann fans out there who've been waiting desperately because he hasn't done much at all for years. Um, and so this is a big deal for a lot of people that, that this show that he is directing is going to be on, but it is going to be on Stars Play from Sunday the 15th. Um, uh, so hopefully we'll get to Ans Ansel Elgort's in it as well, I just add as a, in brackets. <laughs> uh, so what else is happening in news? Oh, can we talk about probably my favourite telly news of this year? It's going to be pretty hard to top and ties in really nicely with one of the shows we're reviewing today. Did everyone see Dan Stevens on The One Show? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> what that channel man. is The One Show? Somebody tell me. What channel? Well, the clues in the Are you title? joking me? <laughs> I only peripherally know what it is. He's yeah, not. what channel is it? He ain't joking BBC you. <laughs> All right. So I wondered that. I thought, because if it's BBC, obviously, then that's even more problematic, <laughs> isn't it? But uh, okay, good, good. That's that's good information for me to have. Yes, yes, I did see that where yeah. he did a rather cunning parallel between Gaslit and the current, shall we say, government 
antics <laughs> and our current lives <laughs> indeed indeed he was quite the wag much to the horror of the hosts of the show that i couldn't name if you paid me i mean um, <laughs> that show isn't that the show where they asked david cameron if, how he can sleep at night so yeah yeah <laughs> i love the fact that, oh, that james has been forced to watch something of the one show doesn't know what yeah. it is doesn't even know no. it's on bbc one every day at seven o'clock um, no idea. It is an extraordinary show. Famously, Mel Brooks was on it as well um, a, a while ago and was like, this show is, he was like con- com- commentating on how whack the whole show is because they do <laughs> jump from one, like, you know, insane subject matter to another without buy or leave, yeah. But that was great by Dan. Yeah, what a hero. Absolute hero, Dan Stevens. Yeah. Right, what else has been this week? Now, we haven't, as I said, uh, reviewed the final season of Better Call Saul, but we did find out that uh, Aaron Paul, and Brian Cranston mm. will be appearing mm. at the end of the final season mm. of Better Call Saul. So well, that's, we don't know uh, if it's the end. We don't know when they're going to be appearing. Oh no, you're right. Yeah, we don't know. We, we could be the beginning. This in the in the in the forthcoming um, uh, spoiler special podcast that you referred to that that Beth and I took part in, we we conjecture a little bit about how they will show up and when they'll show up. But it's completely a mystery at the moment. We don't know. But they have confirmed they're showing up. Which I think is it's interesting. Is they could have tried to keep it a secret, um, and like certain you know a lot of casting things are kept. Um, kept secret from us just to add yeah. a little bit of excitement yeah. but to absolutely come clean and go yes they're going to be in it I think it probably is a good move and now because we're still now all excited about exactly how that's going to work yeah it yep. feels like it's going to right the wrongs of El Camino as well yes which I know disappointed what a lot of people what's wrong with El Camino people just really didn't like it did they did they not I liked El Camino People had issues oh, with it. I think did, that's fair. You are, you yeah, are you the are entire people. general public. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can, cannot fathom you know, a different opinion. <laughs> I just finished watching the one show and I went straight into watching El Camino. Yeah. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Finger on the pulse, me. <laughs> James playing the one show and El Camino all in one <laughs> glorious mix. Yep, yep. Happy to do it. Happy to do yeah. it. Uh, okay, fine. What else? Have we got any other news? I know that Joseph Gordon-Levitt joined uh, Ryan Johnson's series Poker Face and that there was a trailer of conversation with friends that I didn't see. Yeah. Also, uh, Justin Bartha is reprising his role in the Disney Plus National Treasure series. Brilliant. So, and Jamie Lee Curtis is doing an Amazon um, Canadian show about a maple syrup heist. I'm excited about that. <laughs> oh, okay. that sounds sick. Yeah. That, that does sound unmissable. Fair enough. Okay, I'm going to assume from that that we've largely exhausted news. <laughs> Definitely that we're exhausted, yeah, for sure. All right, right, we're exhausted. Okay, right, let's go on to the main event, which is the sprint to the finish line, which is the 18 fucking shows you've got <laughs> to review this week. But before we do that, before we do that, let's hear from this week's second guest. Uh, Sarah Soleimani is an actor and screenwriter who brought us last year's Ridley Road, among other things, uh, and who's appeared in the likes of No Offence, The Wrong Man's, Bad Education, Him and Her. Uh, and this week, she's co-created Shiv with Steve Coogan, in which she plays an acclaimed film director who's kind of brought into D Me Too, a problematic production. Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say she's absolutely brilliant in this, but Boyd met up with Sarah the other week, and here's what she had to say. Is that a corner of your own home that I'm speaking to you from in LA? I'm in, the sh- I'm in a shed. Yeah, I have a shed oh. at the top of a hill. I called it my fascist shed because where I wrote Ridley Road. <laughs> and, and my husband had to take a meeting up here and realised that behind him was a, a copy of Mein Kampf. <laughs> so I had to turn the camera and there was a whiteboard and I'd written all the stuff of chivalry and it was like dick, cock, arse, rape. There, and he's just like, there's nowhere safe in this bloody shed. <laughs> Talking about like climate change and global finance. Yeah, that's a scary, scary shed. Yeah, That's just, my, just a little insight into my head. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, 
And welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, by the way. Thank you for Thank joining you for having us. Me. Pleasure. Um, so, Chivalry, this uh, extraordinary series you've co-created with Steve Coogan. Um, so, it's being it's be, the the I guess the, the idea of it is it's dealing with the Me Too, with romance and relationships and sexual mores in the Me Too era. But it strikes me that it's also very much about to me what it's like making films and working on a set and all of that. And I was fascinated by yeah. that because whenever I visit a set, I find it quite scary because it feels like such a bubble existence, such a weird existence, such a special place. Yeah. It's quite scary from that side yeah. of the game. Was that one of the things you wanted to portray particularly? Well, we toyed with, with it because the thing we really didn't want is it to feel like some in jokey and that people who aren't in the industry couldn't relate. So it's really sort of like a workplace uh, show where... I mean, anyone that's got a public facing job, even if you're like working in a school or a bakery, like you're having to negotiate a new landscape where people may take offense or you may say the wrong thing or you may feel like someone's crossing a line. So the showbiz is, is, or filmmaking is a kind of microcosm of, of everything because you're um, feigning real life. You're trying to craft a story and so you're trying to imitate life. Uh, so it's, it's it's good for kind of ex- you know, that sort of exaggerated behaviour, but yeah, all the time we were like, how is this just relatable for people who you you know in, in the business? But I think it is relatable, and it's also it's both relatable and captures the unique atmosphere on a set. I think as well that where kind of weird people behave strangely, and you know the way the runners work and. Um, the way, just the way people relate to each other is quite unusual, if it strikes me. Yeah, it's, there's, there's definitely a hierarchy and there's power, there's, there's, there's power plays, there's huge power plays. And I think that's why Me Too was so overdue because of the abuses of power that, uh, that occurred. And, and actually my character, Bobby, explains to Steve, Steve's character, Cameron, why intimacy supervisors are necessary on sets because men who had the power to stop abuses happen chose not to. Mm. Um, and so actually it's a way sort of, um, of unpacking all these horrific revelations of systemic abuse that happened. Uh, when you understand how thick these structures and these power dynamics and, and the desperation of people to make their work. I mean, that was one of the things that was so tragic for me about the whole Harvey Weinstein thing was like, look at a generation of female artists and filmmakers that we just lost because they were too traumatized to come back in the industry. Like, what, would, what would they have made? What would their pop fiction have been? Like, we were robbed of that. Um, and, and so my character, she's been, you know, she's spent years trying to get into this industry and now she's got a little taste of power. And so the show kind of explores like what she, what she does with it and, and, and what it does to her. Yeah. Because you don't, because you certainly don't, um, your character, she's not a, an angel by any means. She's, she's as, as kind of flawed and, and, uh, has issues as, as as normal human beings are but she definitely is, she's definitely, she's definitely enjoying, you get a sense she's definitely enjoying the power that she now has. Right. Right, and that's that's one thing in our we're in the culture where we're seeing huge shifts and people being given opportunities that might not have been given them, and, and how do they behave in that? Just because you're a woman and you're a feminist doesn't mean you're going to have these um, 
an ethical standard that's going to mean that you treat everyone the way they should be treated. And she makes huge mistakes. I mean, everyone's flawed in the show. I think that's what we kind of mm. enjoyed uh, highlighting. And each in, in each scene uh, in episode one, uh, it's a little squirting scene where um, there's like a power play. And, and at first, you know, Bobby's winning because she, she identifies that Ollie's Nigerian. What does your name mean? And then it kind of just flips on its head and suddenly she's the one that's been shamed for never yeah. having squirted. Yes. <laughs> that is a brilliant scene. Yeah. Just to go right back to the beginning of the, of the um, conception of the show. Mm. Um, I know you, so you, I think it's on, it was on the set of Greed, wasn't it? You and you and Steve mm-hmm. um, hanging out. But w- and coming up with the idea, et cetera. But which one of you, was there one of you, one or either of you who went, right, come on, let's do this. Let's sit down and create something about this whole world that we're in now. Yeah, I, we both, he said, he said we should write a show, mm. you know, and a lot of people say that. Uh, and, and then I was like, yeah, well, I'm definitely, we should definitely write a show. And then he was like, we should go out, well, let's go out for lunch. While we were filming, he was like, let's go out for lunch and, and talk about how we're going to write the show. And so when I realized he was serious about it um, and not just serious about writing it, but also uh, my, my uh, hesitation with it was that um, even if we did write the show, that we could fall into the trap of him being kind of, you know, a bit old school and me being like, oh, yes, silly old sexist. You can't go around saying that anymore. <laughs> and it was like that. Yeah. that vibe and I was like I really would I'd rather not do anything at all if it's going to be that um and then my other worry was that he just wasn't gonna uh go that deep and be that honest um and so much of it was about exploring the male psyche whenever there's any movement or, or feminist wave the focus is always on women and who are women and what they've gone through and, and actually it's like well who are men and what's going on there and we need to have conversations about that. I mean, look at what just happened at the Oscars. You're like, what's going on there? And he, and, and, I, and the show needed Steve to be really open, really honest, really raw. And, and he was with me behind, you know, when we were writing, which I'm really, really relieved. And did you decide that quite early on, you could have, this could be a, a series where, you know, your you're two characters are fascinating and you're interacting and, you know, you're exploring this whole uh, post Me Too world. But you've also added the, in quotes, romantic element that the two of you, mm. there's a, you know, there's a sexual tension. I think it's quite clear quite early on. And I've, I've only seen the first two episodes, so I don't know how it works. But that's clearly an element of it. And was that something you wanted, you thought, oh, that's going to be, that's going to be a really interesting way of exploring this, to have these two characters? I think so, yeah, because it was like, it felt, it humanised, it humanised both of them because you see, you can't exist in a space of us versus them because men and women have to interact. And one of the beauties about being a human being is you feel attraction and pleasure uh, from, from each other. And, 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 and it's very, I mean, it was very tricky to write because we're dealing me too at its core is about abuse and violation and trauma and pain so we we didn't want to undermine what that was but at the same time as is a woman's life it, 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 so many women have experienced assault it it is a part of them but it doesn't dominate who they are and they have complicated sexual romantic lives with that um being a, a facet of it so so it felt 
it felt really hard to write. Mm. And that's kind of what drew us to it because that felt like the story we should tell. And there must be so much. I get you're, you're right, talking all these different elements to it and all these different, um, you know, the, the quite heavyweight elements to it. And there's, you know, there's a kind of, there's some, just, it's fu- being funny as well. That you, it is a comedy. It's very clearly a comedy. And in fact, the, like the intimacy coordinator um, stuff and Sienna Miller, absolutely fantastic as this incredible American actress figure having to do with all that. It's really funny. So it must've been, I, I, yeah, it must've been difficult. Was it almost to, to establish the right tone as well to tonally yeah. work out how to go from the funny to the. Yeah. It was a huge, it was a huge kind of tightrope to walk and Marta Cunningham, our director helped us not be afraid of like going darker and, and more real, I guess, in some spaces and steve as well he was not the thing about steve is he wasn't afraid not to be funny um but sparingly like Mm. being sincere and um having the confidence to just not have a kind of comedy payoff all the time but then but being so rigorous with the comedy that that you're given permission to laugh and every and what's interesting is talking to people who've seen the show is the men on the whole are responding to things that are completely different to what the women are responding to. Oh, really? And so, and, and that was one of our ambitions was that, that everyone could laugh, but you, but you may be like men and women could laugh at the same thing for different reasons. Yes. Yes. I bet. I, I think it's interesting that Steve's character is kind of aware of what he should be doing really, or that he should be thinking about his behavior, but at the same time, kind of wants to, to some extent, carry on behaving, you know, slightly questionably, right. maybe, you know. Right, well, that's the thing. And it's like, it's like we're in a place in a culture where uh, a, a lot of people, to various degrees, feel a bit policed, mm. that, they, that, they, that they have to be so careful about what they say and everyone takes things so seriously and there's such ridiculous consequences for saying something that's seemingly mild. And, and that is a truth that people are experiencing that. So you can't dismiss it. But at the same time, for any accelerated progress or any evolution to happen, there, there, there has to be consequences for the behavior to change. And so both things are necessary. And um, we've all had the secret conversations with our friends, the secret whispers about things. And then the official line of inquiry, you know, the official line that you've got, you've got to you've got to say and so it's uh how you navigate and that kind of dance that we're all doing i guess is Mm. is what uh, these characters uh sort of find themselves in yeah what do you think about i was thinking about this recently that because there are a lot of rumors aren't there often go often what happens is there's a kind of there's an interesting trajectory to to how someone a man might get there's lots of rumors about you know there might be about an actor or whatever and then like months later suddenly there's a story, you know, a story might appear in a newspaper mm. or online about this person, they're named, and then uh, lots of women come forward, and then it might end up nothing happening after that. Do you know what I mean? What, do you feel like, even though things have changed post-Harvey Weinstein, that equally they haven't changed enough? Because that kind of thing can still happen, that how can all of these women seemingly corroborating each other's experience with a particular person, then nothing happens, seems to happen after that? Um, I think... <sighs> I like to to actually be more optimistic than that. And I think the fact that Harvey Weinstein is in prison was part because the nature of trauma and consent 
had shifted in our collective consciousness, meaning previous rape trials where a woman has texted an acu- the accuser, uh, oh, thank you for last night, um, you know, I hope to see you again, would, would throw the case out. And now we know, because we're further along in our evolution, that, that women can experience a non-consenting violation and then to to try and pretend it was something else uh, keep communication with that person and my friend Deborah Francis White has this incredible theory about you know the fright or flight theory on on animal behavior she says Mm. women don't have fright or flight they have freeze and friend their body goes into a sort of shock and then they just try and befriend the person to diffuse and that's a huge development in what a lot of women felt was a rigged system of the due process wasn't applicable to them because it's his word against hers. And if there's no other witness, he will win. So I am, um, I think there's been incredible progress and we shouldn't really lose sight of that. Of course, there's still uh, abuses that go on, but I think uh, men have to be a lot more careful on their behavior and yeah. their, their conceptual understanding of what consent is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, apart from um, the, the tightrope, as you say, walking in the diff and, and how the challenge of exploring all this stuff in, in, in a, in a series, in a six part half hour comedy series in some ways, was it also fun just to work with Steve Coogan? I mean, I have to, I have to say he's absolutely one of my heroes. I'm obsessed with Alan Partridge. I'm obsessed with everything he's ever done. So for you, was it just like, actually, it was it fun to work with him, to write with him, to bounce ideas off him? Yeah. It, I mean, it was, you know, like any show, it is hard work. They say, yeah, your own show is like being um, beaten to death by your own dream. <laughs> uh, uh, there's an element of that. Uh, but yeah, he's very, he's just very funny. And he will say things or pitch ideas uh, or send me like text messages. And I will just be just laughing for days. Um, and uh, we, like I said earlier, like, you know, we, we were sharing quite a lot of our lives and our family and our, you know, our emotional journeys, if you like. And so it was, it was, it was fun. Um, and also he's just had such an interesting life. He's had such an interesting, you know, journey. He's, he's been famous for a really long time with a character that's so beloved by the nation. And, and, and that was fascinating to me. It's like, what is it about Partridge that just, we feel so connected to, we feel so, we understand that mm. man and that man helps us understand being British in a weird way. Um, and that was, that was interesting. And also just technically he writing comedy with him, you know, he sort of always stops like a few feet before the joke and has trust that a lot of trust in the audience that, that they'll bring, they'll fill in the gaps, um, which is just interesting to see how different, you know, people technically approach crafting mm. comedy yeah, because he did because even with alan partridge he explored me too didn't he a bit in in, in, in this time yeah. with partridge, you know he's, he loves exploring kind of current things doesn't he with his with his characters using his characters like that yes it's very and it's very clever because he is you know alan is always getting it wrong but trying mm. so hard to get it right and so it's it's very clever and in, in again giving permission for us to laugh ourselves. Um, 
which is just sublime to watch. Uh, talk about the cast. I mentioned Sienna Miller, who's who's phenomenal, um, hilarious. Wanda Sykes, I mean, as well, same, same, you know, like just watching her in Curb has been one of the great joys of recent year, yeah, two years. Yeah. Did you just, did you know her? Did you, did you write the role for her? Did you just think, oh, let's try and get Wanda Sykes? How did that happen? Yeah, I'd met, I met her at a party in Hollywood just after Brexit, actually. And her wife is French. Um, Alex and I was like fangirling Wanda and I was like I really want to write for you I want you to be one of my shows like, I think you're just so amazing and she was like okay well here's my number and then I was like it won't be like Hollywood money it'll be like European money and her, her wife looked she was smoking a cigarette and her wife went European <laughs> and I was like oh my god I've just been told I'm not a European by a French lesbian oh my god ah! um it was such a dagger in the heart and then I called her up and I was like Wanda your wife told me I wasn't European you have to be in my show and she was like oh sorry about my wife she's very French and she did the show so I was thrilled, yeah, I was thrilled. that's brilliant have you become friends with her have you have you discussed after because she co-hosted the fucking Oscars I let's know. not forget have you asked her about the Oscars I have yeah I have okay. It's, okay. It's, and that's what's also so just so outrageous was that Wanda, Amy and Regina did such an incredible job yeah. And they and it was such a historic night for so many reasons. And this happened. And and to be honest, we're all still in like deep, deep shock. It's yeah. such a it's such an important it is an important moment for the industry. It, it is a symbolic night. And there'd been so much there'd been so much progress made in in representation and in historic wins and it was just so traumatizing to watch. And I watched it with my daughter, who was like, why is he saying the F word? Because uh, we watched a version that wasn't um, censored. So she was like, why is he saying the F word, mommy? It's like, oh my God, what's happening? It was insane, wasn't it? Yeah, I was watching it live as well. It was absolutely one of the most insane things I've ever seen, yeah. Um... It's just so many, di- it's just so much to unpack. Yeah. Um, and also sort of just feel really sorry for him, going sort of what, where are you at mm. uh, and how could this happened and why were you i mean wonder went on ellen and she just said you know she he should have been removed from the building because that's what happens when someone's assaults someone you take that mm. building and the standing it was also very interesting just demonstration of like human collective psychology it's yes. like wow oh, yes. okay and then we stand up and yeah clap. yeah i felt like everyone froze it was so shocking that no one knew what to do yeah. And they just frozen, kind of reverted to their normal behaviour, which is applauding a very famous star, no matter what he's doing. You know, it was, yeah. yeah it, and I, I, I mean, this is a very cliche thing to say, but it is like, if you'd have written that in a script, you know, would you have gone, through, this is going too far. This is too ridiculous. You know, this, yeah. is the, this could I, be torn out of the pages of a script that you've written with Steve Coogan. It really could. I mean, it'll be, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has written a really good piece. Oh, really? On Substack. Yeah, he wrote a really good piece about it. Um, oh, I love Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just, anyway. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's great. And, and, and it's on Substack. And, and it's just, it, it, w- w- the different levels of why it was, it was a, a bad, bad thing mm, that mm. we've all witnessed and we've all just trying to make I'll sense of. Oh, I'll check it out. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and just to say, you know, I mean, you must be delighted that you, we've created this show about this, compl- could not feel more current with Steve Coogan, comedy legend. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, you know, when you won 
you won the awards for him and her with Russell and all of that. Is this, this are you living the dream? Is this what you wanted, you hoped would happen? Because it seems pretty fantastic from afar to me. Well, thanks, Boydie. I remember that night because yes. that was the first award show I'd ever been in uh, too. And we won. And then st- uh, Russell ran to the stage and I, I kissed everyone on the lips as I walked up. I was like, thank you. <laughs> And 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 uh, and then we just felt like we'd won the Oscar, and then I lost my award and tried to take Russell's. Wow! He's like, that, that's mine. I was like, no, it's not. And then I was like, to retrace my drunk steps in Soho and find it. Oh um, God! Yeah, uh, I am very, very. I'm really enjoying myself. I'm be yeah. I am in a privileged place of making work that I care about and that I that that I'm seeing being made and it has been a very it's been a long journey of trying to get my work made and and now I am and it it, it is it's a good feeling and obviously there's lots more I I feel like I'm sort of only getting started really I've got so much I want to write and so many interesting stories and um developing and uh, yeah, it's a good time for me. And do you, and I, I haven't seen the whole of this series, but unless you kill everyone off, I, I guess you know. There's. Would you like it to carry on? Would you? Could you think it could be a returning show? Yeah, we have. Uh, we do have a storyline for season two. We're talking to Channel Four now about. Um, but we really both very invested in these characters and also what they, where we, because they are flawed and they are relatable. We like where we can put them and and, and kind of pushing it a bit further. Like being a bit more dangerous with them, I think excites us both. Oh, fantastic! Well, I can't wait to see the rest of the series. It's uh, thank you, Boydie. It's fascinating. Thank you so much, Sarah. Cheers. Take care. Wait. Okay, let us go on to this week's reviews proper. First, this week we have Gaslit. Based on the podcast Slow Burn, this kind of re-examines the Watergate scandal that brought down President Nixon, only from some different perspectives, including that of Julia Roberts' Martha Mitchell, who was the wife of Nixon's Attorney General, Beth. What is the verdict on Gaslit? Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Dan Stevens already in my good books, so... He's <laughs> <laughs> off to a good start. <laughs> We're off to a solid start. I love Dan Stevens, man. I really think his like post-Downton choices have been pretty fun. Um, we're just running a story in the new issue about the guest, and he. I just love that he went from that period drama. He could have very easily fallen into this romantic lead you know, in a lot of things. And instead he's gone on and done like Legion and really interesting, fun, different stuff. He's in a show I really love called High Maintenance uh, that he shows up in um, as this uh, cross-dressing guy. He's just great. And so I was pleased he's in this playing a slightly nuanced piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) for want of a better description. Um, But yes, this was, uh, I did approach with caution because I, this looks like very much an Adam McKay show and I just don't get on with Adam McKay very well at all. But really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed it. So this is more of a, it is an ensemble show, absolutely. I think I've stopped on the wrong foot here. I just love Dan Stevens so much. But really the star of the... <laughs> really the, the... I mean, the big talking point about the show is Julia Roberts as Martha Mitchell, um, the whistleblower, as we say. Um, and she is 
kind of from the off this very I was reminded of Kate Blanchett as uh Phyllis Schlafly in Mrs. America. Uh and obviously Phyllis Phyllis Schlaf oh my goodness, not saying that on my birthday. Phyllis <laughs> Schlafly. <laughs> obviously a villainous, villainous woman in history, but like such an interesting performance from Kate Blanchett in that show. Uh very yeah, very grand, very clipped and toxic and but very entertaining to watch at the same time. And that's very much what Julia Roberts is channeling in this as Martha Mitchell, this kind of domesticated poster woman, but with a real savage side, you know, she is in a very problematic marriage with uh, Sean Penn's John Mitchell, who was just buried under prosthetics in this. But it, in I think in this current wave of prosthetics, kind of gets away with it better <laughs> to voice laughing and nodding but it gets away with it slightly better than some of the recent examples of this um but yes yeah she's in this she can really give as good as she gets it's probably the best way to say it and she's you know on the surface got this very very moneyed you know lavish lifestyle but underneath it she's got real claws and it's capable of doing real damage and so it's really interesting to see her in a role like this i haven't seen her other tv roles but i understand it's homecoming she did didn't she yes yes i've heard homecoming is is wonderful and she's she's incredible in that and she's very 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 good in this i like seeing her doing juicy roles like this um and this feels like a really good good one for her uh yeah sean penn as john mitchell is is just watching Sean Penn being Sean Penn, I feel like. He doesn't really bring anything especially new to this story. Dan Stevens is great, but I want to give a special shout out to Betty Gilpin, who's in this. Um, one of my main qualms is that I never see Betty Gilpin. Aside from Glow, obviously, I just think she hasn't been put to a very good use in other roles. Like She's usually underused in this she's great so she plays uh maureen kane dean who is um she's very liberal and she starts this really interesting relationship with dan stevens character john dean who works in the white house he works for the nixon administration so it's really interesting seeing their dynamic as a couple who clearly fancy each other but obviously have massive differences in opinion on so many things so that was really interesting um i'm on board so far i've seen a seen the first episode um I am tiring a little bit of seeing maniacs in power, <laughs> I have to say. And one really good example of that is Shay uh, Wiggum as uh, G. Gordon Liddy, who is absolutely fucking insane. Absolutely insane. Um, in a way that I just, I'm so sick of seeing him in real life. It's not much fun to watch on screen. Uh, wonderful performance, to say the least. But yeah, he is pretty... He's a real he's a real rotter in this and it's just a little bit overwhelming to watch sometimes. Julie Roberts is great, Dan Stevens great, Betty Gilpin, incredible, can do no wrong in my eyes. Yeah, I I am actually weirdly obsessed with Watergate. So um, going back to <laughs> going back to there was a show called Washington Behind Closed Doors that aired when I was ten years old in nineteen seventy seven. That I very distinctly remember watching on TV. <laughs> it was a bit of a phenomenon. And in that show, like Jason Robards effectively played Nixon in that show, right? And it told the story of Watergate. But it, it fictionalized. They they couldn't name any of use all their real names because at that point they were still alive. Most of the people involved were still alive. Even Nixon was still alive. So they gave them fictional names, but it was absolutely literally the story of Watergate 
but with fictional names instead of Nixon, etc., Jig Woodley, etc. But it told this story really from in, in you know, um, in kind of from an overall point of view. And ever since then, I've been fascinated and obsessed with the Watergate scandal. You know, going from all the President's Men, one of the greatest films of all time, up until um, you know, more recent explorations of it which uh, uh, there's coming up soon there's another prestige tv project coming soon with justin theroux playing g gordon liddy um i thought that was him right. <laughs> in this show well, it's so that is really interesting yeah, yeah. that is the white, that's called the white house plumbers and that was right. that was commissioned and made pretty much at the same time as this show um, oh, that's an HBO. That's becoming soon this year from HBO with Rudy Harrelson <sighs> um, as E. Howard Hunt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Donald Gleason's in it. Lena Headey's in it. I mean, that's got an all-star cast as well, but it's it's, it's told more from G. Gordon Liddy's point of view. This is, right. as you've said, told from the point of view of Martha Mitchell, played by Judy Roberts. Now, is this the, sorry? Is this just not a bit infuriating. I know but that's another one where we're getting two of the same but story. I don't Absolutely mind. Absolutely infuriating. It is. It is because I'm a Watergate obsessive, you, you just, I'm like, fine with it. Let it wash over me. Let it wash over me. Yeah. And so this one is based on a podcast, a slow burn podcast, um, which I listen to as well because I am a Watergate obsessive. It was a great podcast. Um, but it's very I, – I think this is excellent, I have to say. In all the – in the kind of um, huge burgeoning world of fictionalised versions of the Watergate story, I think it's a brilliant device – to focus on Martha Mitchell as an outsider slash insider at the same time. She's literally married to one of the core people involved, John Mitchell, played by Sean Penn, under, as you say, the prosthetics. But in that kind of, you know, Colin Farrell in The Batman slash Jared Leto in um, in uh, The House of Gucci. But I think he is better even... I mean, I, I didn't mind Colin Farrell. I thought Colin Farrell was great, actually, in The Batman. But I think John, Sean Penn is great in this in this role. You totally believe him. And I did forget it was Sean Penn quite quickly and that because he's so... He, he so embodies this fucking privileged, you know, <laughs> ultra-entitled, <laughs> a, absolute fuckwit of a, of a human being. And you're seamlessly. Like, seamlessly, right. But how does he do that? I don't know. He's very well cast. Let's just say that. Let's just leave it at that. He's brilliantly well cast, Sean Penn, as is everyone. Dan Stevens is phenomenal as John Dean. And as you said, Shay Wiggum as G. Gordon Liddy, the psychopath, the real right-wing fascists psychopath yeah. whose ideas there's a brilliant scene where he on a whiteboard thing he kind of like goes through his various ideas to ruin the democratic party illegally during you know this period are astonishing all of them absolutely true by the way he absolutely did advocate all of these extraordinary um ways of ruining the democratic party um uh, in, in completely unconstitutional undemocratic me means and he is phenomenal he but you know what i love about the whole thing it's funny it's really funny. It takes, and yet it hasn't gone fully. I know the Adam McKay thing. You're absolutely right. But do you know what? It doesn't go full Adam McKay. No, it, it no, it doesn't. So it's believable. It reigns it in because everything that it's depicting happened, as is detailed if you listen to the podcast. Yeah. But because they've cast it so well, and because these people are extreme examples of humanity in mm. various ways, it rings true. So the the, the kind of, the, the comedic tone to it, I think, works really, really well. And I'm glad it wasn't Adam McKay. And in fact, that Sam Esmail, who's <laughs> yeah. one of the exec producers who did exec produce Homecoming with Julia Roberts on Prime Video. So I think that's the connection. That's oh, yeah. partly how they've got it made. Um, I, I think it's fabulous. I really do. I think it's just, it's, it feels authentic. It's lavishly made. 
um you know the kind of period details extraordinary but the cast is brilliant yeah. Um, the dialogue is hilarious and funny. Yeah, absolutely. Most of it did happen. Let's not forget. Yeah. So I, I'm here for it. I'm loving it. It's great. Didn't watch it. It's going to be like, Jesus, what did you think about this? The really funny thing I can say about this is when James asked if I'd watched this and I said, yes. He was like, did you? Did you though? Did you? And without realizing, oh. gaslit me. I'm about gaslit. Oh. <laughs> Are you sure you watched it, Beth? I'm not sure you did. Unbelievable. did. <laughs> yeah, I did. They didn't put it in my watch queue, no. and I couldn't get it. And then by the time I remembered, they'd all gone home, and so I couldn't get it in time. Sorry, no. <laughs> I can't help you with this one. Yeah, but that's brilliant. you know, I will just simply say whatever they said. I'm sure it's true. So <laughs> that is Gaslit, which airs on Stars Play on the 24th of April. Next up this week, a show I actually have seen, uh, this is Life After Life, the Beebs adaptation of the Kate Atkinson novel. Yes, Kate Atkinson of Jackson Brody, case history's fame. Now, I appreciate that Jackson Brody is supposed to be from Yorkshire and he's not in fact Scottish, but he is in <laughs> Scotland. And Amanda Abington's character goes, Jackson Brody, whenever she says to it. So anyway, I'm just explaining why I did it in that stupid accent. Uh, but this, 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 this is not Jackson Brody and this is not a PI mystery, but this is rather a very odd period drama. With a very unusual structure. So I would describe this as, if you'd agree, sliding doors meets Groundhog Day meets Final Destination. So, Boyd, <laughs> what on earth is going on? <laughs> yes, that's quite good. Yeah, that's quite good. But, yeah. Basically, the premise is, so I've read this novel. Let me say, so I'm, I'm going to sound very um, overly informed this week because I just happened, a lot of the things that just happened to tap into things. That, I'm a huge Kay Atkinson fan. She's a fucking legend. And this was a phenomenal novel that she wrote, incredibly ambitious. But the basic premise is that this, it focuses on um, this, this uh, woman who, um, played by Thomas and Mackenzie when she's an adult, and she's born in 1910. And the idea is that, as the Life After Love title alludes to, is that in the first time we see her, she, um, she the baby dies immediately as soon as she's born. And then from then on, the narrative follows different lives that the same character lives. Um, and they all, she lives longer and longer and longer in each one, if you like. So that's the kind of, so it's, it's kind of different from other, other narratives that, that show us different lives or repeating the same life over and over again. Yeah. We've seen that as in another show we're about to review, for example, Russian yeah. Doll. Um, so it's more than that. It's not just the fact that she's living, reliving her life again and again. It's that she's reliving it and living more of it and living different versions of it. And it's what the whole, what the whole idea of it is, is that each, every, all, every time you live a life, all, everyone's life is um, honed and fashioned and influenced by tiny little moments within, you know, the the experiences we have, and so each of the lives is more is affected by something else that happens, or some other thing that happens, or it may be a decision that she herself, this main character, makes. But it's kind of about how how does fate does fate exist? How do how are our lives? Um, how are the instants in our lives? What do they mean? How how do they happen? Um, you know, and it's it's kind of it's exploring all these deep, profound, complex philosophical ideas. But in the end, the way it, why it works, I think for me, the novel, well, particularly why the novel worked, was because it's using this the, this quite quite fantastical device in a very rooted in reality way. And so, in the, the kind of the novel is so well done that you kind of buy into this fantastical idea. 
and it actually explores, you know, war. And it's no coincidence that she she goes through the First World War and the Second World War in various versions of her life, even to the point where Hitler comes into it. Slight spoiler alert. Um, and it's about, you know, how does this person and what's happened to them influence then world events even? And so it really is like a kind of mind-blowing, mind-expanding, incredibly ambitious idea. Now, so that's the general gist. For me, I was surprised when they announced that this was being turned into a TV show. I was like, oh, okay, interesting, because it's such a complex, ambitious novel, right? It's like, okay, you, you, you're almost unfilmable, you think. How are they going to fucking do this thing? And I, I was particularly amazed they're going to do it in four parts, in four hours, because I'm like, really? This is like a dense, textured novel that's like 400, 450 pages. It's epic. Um, but I'm quite impressed with the way they have done it. I think they've captured the essence of the idea really well. It starts with a kind of framing device of Thomas and Mackenzie's character talking to her brother who's about to go off to war. And they and they they kind of discuss what would happen if you lived another life. They kind of immediately get into a discussion of the whole kind of um, premise, really, which was thought was quite clever. And then and, and it does follow quite closely to the, to the book the different incidents that happen in Thomas and Mackenzie's character's life fairly closely and it dramatizes them pretty well i'm not because i've read the book i can't work out whether it is working very well and that it is um depicting the essence the philosophical essence and the whole fantastical idea of the book or whether just because i know what the whole idea is that's working for me quite well and the cast is great sean clifford as the mother is brilliant james mccardle as a dad is very very well cast jessica hines being quite funny i think is the kind of housekeeper character um but I'm enjoying it, but I don't know whether if you haven't read the book, if it, if if it, if it is just bewildering and a bit confusing and a bit odd. I don't know. I mean, it, I feel it's it's all of those things. Right. I also feel like you didn't notice the one thing that stood out for me on this is it has this kind of pushing daisies narrator. Oh, sorry, yeah. It's like yeah. it has been twelve hours, yeah. thirteen days, forty-seven minutes, and fifteen <laughs> yeah. seconds That's since right, Ursula it? died. Like it's like it's just like, it, but it's a slightly super real comedic or not quite comedic voiceover but there's an yeah. element of comedy to the voiceover yeah. and it really evoked that whole because the, the narration in Pushing Daisies is fucking brilliant and it just made me yeah. think about that uh, all the way through it I was slightly thrown by this and about the talk of Chicken Corner I said, like, what the fuck is Chicken Corner uh, and lots of discussion of warm eggs also this whole watching this felt like playing Elden Ring it's a hot topical video game reference <laughs> for you but this idea of just constantly dying and trying to learn from dying and get that little bit further had a kind of souls like vibe to it but uh, beth beth sorry what did you think what did you make of this did it confuse you it confused me were you confused <laughs> yeah. i'm still confused <laughs> i would just say watch russian doll really <laughs> if you want to see if you just want to see someone dying learning from their mistakes trying it again dying and trying again literally just watch russian doll is out this week you can watch the second season it's all on netflix <laughs> it, it was oh i'm sorry i like I really like Thomas and Mackenzie, which is partly why I didn't get on with this episode because she was in it for five fucking minutes. She was, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry if that's a spoiler, but I just don't don't want to get your hopes up, to be honest. Um, <laughs> just like a bit, considering it is an, an interesting concept, although you know it's done by a Russian doll. Like you could have had so much more fun with this. It just felt really static and sad and. Oh my god! So it felt quite self-indulgent, to be honest. The way that they die is interesting. You mentioning Elden Ring. She says, having only watched it played <laughs> incessantly over someone's shoulder and watching the blood pressure of their partner rise day by day as they continue to play this fucking game. But like the way that they that she dies, it's shown like a video game. Like she just sort of floats into this yeah. like dark ether, 
and you're just, <laughs> it's just like, a, you died. Yeah. She come up on the screen exactly, um, and it feels like she and she then she gets like dropped back in the same like thing, and I just. <laughs> I just felt it could have been so much more imaginative and it could have been more exciting. This isn't exciting to me. It just feels like she's always kind of going through the motions until the next bit. There doesn't feel like enough intensity considering it's about this woman dying, well, this girl kind of dying over and over and over again. I just, yeah, I found it a little bit muddled, sad, static, and I like Russian Doll a lot more. <laughs> Obviously, I'm being very reductive here. <laughs> sure, but, but I, that, there's sense to this. Like, I, so I, like, watching this again, like, not knowing, I've never read this book, I don't know a great deal about it going in, I was sitting here thinking, and I, this probably isn't true of once you've seen all four episodes, and I'm sure it isn't true of the book, but I couldn't understand why we had this device. Like, it didn't seem relevant to the story. Like, it felt like this is a period drama playing out and it occasionally resets because something awkward happened and then we continue as if the awkward thing didn't happen because they sidestep it. I'm like, we could kind of do without that yeah. and you could just tell the story. Like, well, I don't yeah. know that it you know added what? a great deal for me. It's, it, it, when the Once the War comes into it, I think it, it Chris, you get a little okay. bit of it, don't you? The, you see how the people, the men returning from war, you know, like one character returns. Yeah you know, disabled and all of that. Well, it's kind of addressing, really, it's very topical, actually, in a way, because, you know, everyone is arguing now, well, certain people are arguing now about why Russia invaded Ukraine, right? And you get these you get these tortuous discussions about, oh, well, you yeah. know, if, if NATO hadn't expanded to the thing. Well, it's kind of addressing that kind of thing. It is about cause and effect in these huge global globally impactful situations and i agree that in the first episode you're like well yeah. it's not doing that yet and it's all warm eggs and chicken yeah, corner it, and i'm like i'm not sure I know, this is I helpful know. <laughs> but it will get it'll get to the point quite soon i do i do agree with you beth i do agree with you that it is being very self-consciously stately and kind of prestigious and do you know what i mean it's got it's got it's adopted a certain kind of um tone of of self-importance i guess yeah i think that is true and possibly a flaw because in a weird way, the novel somehow avoids that. And actually, that narration, which you're right, I forgot to mention, um, is, is, is kind of there in the book. And it adds a kind of, it does make it lighter. It does, it does give it a lightness, a weirdly, in terms it of does, yeah, yeah. the storytelling, which hasn't quite fully come to fruition in this TV version yet. Mm. I think, yeah, it's, it's just it's leading like the premise should be enough. Like the premise is yeah. the big selling point and that should be what's drawing you in so much so that they're withholding probably their most prolific cast member. Um, and it's just, it's it's not enough. It just astonishes me slightly in this, in this day and age, you can tell I'm getting old, but like, you know, you have to make an impression with that first episode now. There's just so much coming mm. out all the time. You really have to drop in and get something really good and eye-catching and attention-grabbing from the off and withholding some of your stronger performers is yeah it baffles me a little bit but yeah russian doll yeah well i i feel like watch russian doll if you have already seen that watch pushing daisies if you've already seen that play elden ring yeah and if you've already done that then maybe watch life after life but as boyd said like i think you know both beth and i have only seen the first episode so all the war stuff is lost on us so i think we've just seen the amuse-bouche of the show i'm sure it kicks <laughs> off sean clifford was tweeting about how much she thinks it's the best thing ever obviously she's in it so slightly biased but yeah. it's clearly a project that she's very passionate about so maybe it is a masterpiece and it's just been lost on me i don't know anyway laughed after life we 
which airs on BBC One on... I don't know, when is it, boy? Oh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Definitely stalling for boys to jump in there. <laughs> Tuesday, BBC Two. Tuesday, oh. yes, interestingly. I think it actually just started as a BBC One project, which is fascinating itself. BBC ah, Two, okay. Tuesday the 19th, 9 o'clock. So it was on BBC One, but it died. So then it did it again, right. and this time was on BBC yes. Two, thus avoiding death <laughs> yes. and learning from the experience. 100%. So that works out very well. Okay, good. Good, good, good. That was Life After Life. Next, we have Chivalry. As we get through this Mammoth Review segment, uh, this is, as we've already discovered, Sarah Soleimani and Steve Coogan's new show. Not only does it have a rather frank commentary on a cinematic sex scene and feature our other guest, Sienna Miller, in a superb role, but it should be applauded for some stupendous deployment of C-bombs as well. Uh, Beth, what did you make of Chivalry? Yes. Sea uh, bombs always the way forward for me. Um, this was something I was obviously going to approach with caution. I don't know very much about Sarah Soleimani, which is to my... Um, that's a big fault of mine that I need to rectify. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of the decisions that Steve Coogan is making at the moment. I'm not looking forward to the episode where we have to review the Jimmy Savile drama. Uh, and then when you see his name attached to a Me Too show as well, which obviously isn't saying anything about Steve Coogan whatsoever, but I do think there is this big... I mean, there is a huge debate, isn't there? A huge ongoing debate of actually who gets to talk about Me Too, if anybody, are we sick of it? Is now the time to stop it now? Please stop. No more. Let's stop talking about this. Um, so yeah, tentative steps towards this. Um, but obviously there are some amazing names in it. Lolly Adafope, who's obviously worked with Steve Coogan a lot in the past. Um, and I think this started on a sensible foot. I think it starts basically by just diving in and being like yeah no, this is this is everything that you imagined that it might be about this is exactly what it is so it is about um Sarah Soleimani's character who is a filmmaker who everybody's sort of lifting her up and saying how much they loved her film she's been brought in to kind of brought in by a studio to kind of um creatively oversee I guess I I, I struggle with it, but creatively oversee a, a real rotter of a male film director um who's had complaints made about him who has a professional relationship with Steve Coogan's character. And she comes in to sort of, yeah, creatively smooth over the uh, the awful, terrible things he's mm. probably done within his working life. And dreams. Sorry, go on. Uh, you, you need to <laughs> log off, James. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess it's not a spoiler to say that they have one conversation and then he dies. <laughs> so then it's left to Sarah Soleimani's character to kind of take over and is a really interesting study, especially given the industry that we work in, to see how a woman navigates through this absolute war zone that this man has created in the industry and really peeling back, you know, the layers that it's gone, the, the layers and also seeing, you know, what steps have been made to cover him up as well. And it's not as depressing as it sounds. I know it sounds really depressing. And if like me, you are just at your limit of this, this kind of method of storytelling, this kind of, you know, anything that deals with the subject at this stage needs to be done incredibly well. And I feel like this is done incredibly well. And I think a huge part of that is Sarah Soleimani and Steve Kogan just knowing when to shut up. <laughs> Essentially, Steve Coogan just knows that he injects like bell like little injections of bellendery throughout, but essentially knows that this is where 
it's her story to tell, her coming in um, and kind of, yeah, she has this wonderful, I won't spoil it, but there's a really wonderful scene with her and Sienna Miller where they have a really interesting conversation. Sienna, Sienna Miller had raised a formal complaint about this filmmaker um, and hearing them talk very honestly and opening together, Steve Coogan all but just like staring down and shuffling his feet at the back of her trailer. It's It's done with nuance. It's done with precision. It's done with what I'm sure is insider knowledge. Hmm. And it's done... Yeah, very, very well, I think. It's funny without being raucously funny. Definitely not at the expense of the women in this show. Um, yeah, it's, it's done with a real deft hand, and I think that is important. And I, yeah, it was it was entertaining as well. It didn't make me want to switch off and pour a big <laughs> glass of wine, is what I'm saying. That's the Beth Webb mm. seal of approval. Mm. So. Yeah. It didn't make you want to go and watch someone else play Elden Ring. Yeah. <laughs> The, yes, the, yes. the the deafness is you're right is 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 the word the nuance um you know all of those words are key I think um I think they've done a, just a, fun, a phenomenal job because they've set themselves a really challenging task I think which is to address the me to the post me to era whatever you want to call it of yeah sexual behaviour relationships um and particularly in in the Hollywood world. And it and yet do it so that it is believable, authentic, mm. funny. It is a comedy. Yeah. It's definitely a comedy. Um, and yet and and not kind of simplify all of these things. And I just think they've done an incredible job. And I think it's down to the writing. These two powerhouses, Sarah, Sarah Solomon is absolutely brilliant at yeah. drawing out, you know, the kind of reality of the situation. And she, her character, and I think it's fascinating that. Her character of this indie darling filmmaker suddenly thrusts into this thing. Well, she's she's cool, isn't she? Because on the one hand, she wants to be able to to kind of not go along with all of the shit that's happened before she's arrived on this project. But then she has to yeah. deal with the gritty reality, which is that it's a nightmare making a low budget indie film. Yeah, it really <laughs> you is. know, and you have to do all kinds of things that compromise that may compromise your principles or may you know, and she turns into a bit of a monster. The end of episode two, she does a monstrously horrible thing, really. And I thought that's fascinating that she she gives herself that her character that thing to do. I just think it's so interesting. Um and I, I'm absolutely loving it. And the cast, Sienna Miller is hilarious as this mm. actress, this spoiled actress. Um, uh, Ashling B is the intimacy coordinator. Brilliant. Um, Lolly Adafope, as you say, just just an extraordinary cast. Um, every, do you know what really brought it home to me, how brilliantly accurate this is? Because we've all been on film sets, right, or TV sets. And I always find going to for set visits, even though I love the idea of them, I always find yeah. it slightly excruciating <laughs> because really you're entering a bubble that of of this, this of all the cast and crew are in, and they enter into this kind of weird situation where they're all kind of working on the same thing, trying to make it all work under various, you know, quite difficult, often with loads of creative people being egotistical psychopaths, and you walk in as this fucking journalist to watch the yeah. thing go down, and they're all like. Who the fuck are you? You know, we've got our little world. I mean, I'm, I'm not like this explicitly, but yeah. I, I feel like I'm being judged in this yeah. way. Yeah. And I know exactly what a, you mean. Yeah. I find it excruciating. That whole, just the whole idea of having to become best mates with about 100 people suddenly, instantly, when you're, yeah. when you're creating something on film and TV. And it captures that so brilliant. I've never, this, I've never seen anything that captures that on set feel so well. 
Um, it's brilliant at that. So even if it wasn't anything to do with me too, even if, you know, if it was just about this is what life is like making sh- making films, you know, um, it, I, I would be fascinated by that. So it's just got the texture of it is so real to me. And yeah, it's very, very funny. And I think Steve's performance, Keith Green's performance is perfectly judged because he's like, he's kind of him really, basically, but enough mm. self-awareness to show that a bit, he's, he's just a bit worse than actual Steve Coogan. I think Steve Coogan is very because he has got these friendships with people like Sarah Soleimani. Really, you know, he's he he he's a he's a avo- he avoids the traps of being a complete fucking bellend very very well. But this guy doesn't quite, and I think that's brilliant. And Sarah Soleimani, I, I just she's a phenomenon. Um, her performance is so brilliantly judged in this, as well as mm. as well as the writing being perfectly judged as well. I think it's really really great. Yeah, I'm with you actually. I I maybe wasn't I didn't feel like this would likely be something that I would like just from the first scene. I was just yeah. like, oh, I didn't enjoy the first scene. And then the first scene takes a hard left turn. <laughs> and after that, I was like, oh, this is really good. Like really good, really well observed, great writing, mm. and I think she is the standout in terms of performance because like Steve Coogan's always good, always dependably good, but you know, his character's, you know, has a lot of partridge in yeah. him. Like it's not like a, <laughs> yeah. it's not like it's a stretch no. for him. Yeah, um, inherently. So. But she's brilliant and she's caustic when she needs to be and she's direct and she's funny and she does some truly world-class eye-rolling, especially when talking to him about the age of his former assistant slash girlfriend. Um, Yeah, I thought it was great. Chivalry then, which airs on something. Channel 4, Thursday. Channel 4, Thursday the 21st, 10 o'clock with a double bill. Oh, thank Mm. you. Good. That's good information. Thank you, boy. Pleasure. Uh, Next up this week, we've got Heartstopper. Uh, and this is Netflix's adaptation of the hit web comic and graphic novel by Alice Oseman, which centers around a gay teenager at a British school who falls for an older boy who is the eponymous Heartstopper. Uh, Boyd, did you heart Heartstopper? I did kind of, yeah. I think it's a really interesting um, it's a really interesting project because it's taken what I believe was a a, a online um, kind of comic book thing. Yep. And that then became a uh, actual physical graphic novel type of yep. thing, um, and it's turned this story of two of two boys, two teenage boys falling for each other, into a very authentically. It's got it takes the kind of comic book style approach visually, and use mm. and, and to the point where it's using animation at various points um, to establish a tone which is very light. And I don't use that in a pejorative way, but I'm thinking it, this is not euphoria, right? Like, you know, if you think of the dark, violent, dodgy, exploitative, leering nature of the way euphoria deals with teen sexuality and relationships, well, this is like the polar opposite. And yeah. it's the pin count is low. The, the pin count is nil. It's not going to, it's, it's family friendly. It's deliberately family friendly. And I think the whole idea of this, partly, partly the idea of it is that this is the thing that young, a young gay teen might, could watch with their parents if they so choose. I mean, it might, that might be excruciating for them anyway. But in theory, <laughs> everyone in the family can watch this. You know, actual teenagers can watch it and it has no issues of being too explicit or too exploitative. I mean, even sex education, which we all love, the sex education, you know, is very, brilliantly so in some ways you know honest and raw mm. about sexuality and sex and etc but but this is doing something different and i think it's really important because it's, it's still you know it's still like once in a blue moon that you'll get particularly a teenage lgbtq story um in a big you know big netflix 
production values. It looks great. It's very well directed. It's very well filmed, etc. But I think um, I think it's a really interesting thing, and I think that the 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 two main roles. So Joe Locke plays Charlie Spring, um, who is um, he's like he's the he's the out gay teen in his school. It's, it's a boys' school, and he is the only one. And so he faces, you know, he's he. You can see how kind of he just on one level he just doesn't give a shit. He wants to be who he is brilliantly. But on another level, he does get bullied for it. He has been bullied for it. So it doesn't soft soap those ideas. And then he meets the kind of if you like Jock, you might. If this was an American show, you'd call him a Jock. He's a rugby player in the school rugby team. Nick, played by Kit Connor, who at that point it considers himself to be in quote straight. Um, and the whole idea is that you know it's this young gay fifteen-year-old falling for in in quotes straight fifteen-year-old and a kind of nerdy figure falling for a kind of slightly Jock figure, athletic figure. But the great thing about the show is that all of those cliches and stereotypes are instantly undermined. So, in fact, you know, it's interesting that um, the Charlie Spring character gets involved in the rugby, and you know, the 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 um, the way that Nick, the Nick character played by Kit Connor, the in quote straight character, deals with his sexuality is really nuanced. Use that word again, and believable, and complicated, and not simple, simplified at all. And then you've got also the interesting point that that the two of them have their own friendship groups. And the friendship groups find that their their burgeoning relationship, they have to deal with that as well. Like, you know, there are little there are jealousies as there would be. I mean, not just among teenagers, but absolutely in adults too. You know, when your best mate falls for someone new and you see less of them, you know, that it kind of dramatizes that whole idea very well. I think it's really well done. I think it's a really important addition to the kind of um list, the 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 quite shockingly brief list of gay teenage tv or film depictions and i think it's pretty good yeah i i thought it was very very sweet exactly as you say it is light it's lightly toned like it doesn't doesn't feel heavy at all it's but it's just super sweet isn't it Mm. all the characters you you couldn't root for them anymore if you tried i really like the use of the kind of animated sequences to give it that slightly sort of slightly not not quite hyper real feel to it but it felt quite grounded and it felt quite real he says as someone nowhere near that age group but you know i felt that it was down with the kids yeah. that's what i thought i thought you definitely felt authentic to me hello fellow kids uh yeah no, I, but it, but again just regardless of any of that and it's clearly not aimed at our age group but it's uh it, it's a really sweet sweet little show and i thought it was nice i mean i've not read the the graphic novel so i don't know you know how closely it cleaves to that but i'm i'm sensing pretty closely but uh yeah i really enjoyed it i only saw the first episode of this so kind of got a taste of what's to come but i thought it dealt very well with the the sort of sexual politics of having a relationship that's semi-clandestine the way he starts off with someone who he's seeing who doesn't want to be seen with him who hasn't come out and is you know quite objectifying and if not abusive certainly like kind of just like a shitty guy do you know he's, a, mm. he's just a shitty guy this person he's saying he takes him for granted he's really sort of unpleasant to him in public and just really nasty about it and then obviously meets this character this person who he sat next to a desk and suddenly is everything that he's been wanting not only a heart stopper if you will but just a lovely person who's not at all afraid of being in touch with their emotions or their sexuality and it's just nice seeing that kind of eye-opening the way he's realizing that he doesn't have to live his life this way he can live it another way as well um so yeah i thought it was a lovely little show i thought it was uh, delightful also and i'm sure beth would have appreciated this mercifully short as have a number of the shows we've <laughs> talked about today chivalry half an hour heart stopper half an hour 
couldn't be more excited about these yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. From so, birthday uh, extravaganza this. <laughs> absolutely. It's the birthday present for, for Beth. But Heartstopper <laughs> dropped on Netflix on the 22nd of April. Also on Netflix and also half an hour long <laughs> is uh, finally this week the second series of Russian Doll. Uh, this episode itself seems to have been on an infinite loop so I guess it's appropriate that we're talking about this except except it's not because this brings back Natasha Leon's Nadia but it doesn't attempt to replicate the first year's kind of time loop format instead taking a kind of time travelling jaunt this time which flings her back to the 80s Beth other than cockroaches uh, what did this one wow. have in store for you <laughs> oh my goodness and it's worth knowing that that does make an appearance yeah. in the first episode. And I, it, I'm feeling that's not an accident. <laughs> oh, 100%. And I mean, that leads into just just what Natasha Leone has done with this new season. So yes, in Natasha Leone, if you haven't seen the first season, and you really should, but she create, co-created this with uh, Amy Poehler and Leslie Headland, um, as well as you know, obviously starring in it. And the main takeaway from the first season, obviously we've seen time loop stuff before, um, but this was done in a really fun philosophical way. But the the, the main takeaway was it really meant that Latasha, Natasha Leone, who we obviously love in things like Orange is the New Black or the teen movies we watched growing up and things, but in recent years hasn't been given the room to kind of run free and just do whatever the fuck she wants. And that's exactly what she got to do with Russian Doll. And it was just brilliant to see her just fill up this character, Nadia, this kind of foul-mouthed, bad-moraled kind of fun computer programmer who gets yes yeah, stuck in this time loop and has to just figure everything out on her own terms and how she's going to sort of come out the other side. She does come out the other side. Um, and in this season, we just, whatever we saw in that first season of this character, Nadia, and Natasha Leone as Nadia, is just cranked up just a few more notches. So it's just her talking in this kind of very heightened language. You've got the two syllable words being turned into three syllables. You've got her kind of shouting and moving around and being promiscuous. And um, so this season takes place for three and a bit years after the first. She's approaching her 40th birthday. Um, her and Alan, who was uh, a big part of the first season, he's back. That's play, He's played by uh, Charlie Barnett and he's back this, this season and they're keeping each other safe as best they can because they basically informed getting out of the, the time loop in the first season. Um, but yeah, she jumps on a train, ends up in the 1980s, uh, where she runs into Shelter Copley, uh, who plays a love interest in this, which was super interesting. You always see Shelter Copley um, if he's not fighting fucking prawns. He's uh, that was my terrible South African accent. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's always the wild card, isn't he? He's always the slightly off kilter hitman, or just being kind of wild and outrageous and and he is he is kind of like that in this but he's also this this love interest to the character that um natasha leone embodies in this other life in the 1980s uh and it goes from there but yeah it's uh it's interesting because i think i said last week in our interview with her which is in this month's issue of Empire, uh she was quite worried about people kind of losing interest in this character and losing interest in this product because it has been three years now since the first season came out. Um, but it's just like being invited back into like a nice warm hug from a very potty mouthed 
New Yorker. Um, it just feels like you're instantly absorbed into that world again. And the world that she's created, this this version of New York that she lives in, is so fascinating and lively and intense and entertaining. Um, and she gets to be your just sort of weird spiritual guide through morality. And uh, and I love it. I love it. I've only seen one episode so far. I will be watching absolutely all of this. You know what I love about it, though? I agree with everything you said. I love how Natasha Leon has tapped into the Jewishness of the situation, right? Yeah. She, yeah. she was brought up Orthodox Jewish, Natasha Leon, um. by her family. I was, reading, I was reading up about it. Um, and in almost every other line, there's like a Jewish reference going on, whether it's been to like <laughs> Liza Minnelli or Barbara Streisand or just, just, just generally. And it's just a yeah. joy to see the kind of, you know, I'm going to mention his name, but the way that Woody Allen would have, you know, kind of dealt with Jewish culture yeah. and Jewishness yeah. back in this heyday, you know, in the 70s, in those films that are still masterpieces, by the way. Um, so I feel like that influence is there and she's just taken it and run with it. And the character is so, but the way, you know, the way she speaks that very, that very uh, Jewish New York accent, um, the way she is, the way she reacts to everything is hilarious. Yeah. Um, like ev the brilliant, I, you'd think, you know, after all this time, in the same way that we thought about season one, right? Season one uses used the Groundhog Day um, premise, and you're like, well, come on, we've we've seen this many times before, but actually yeah. made it incredibly fresh and thrilling. I mean, now you're dealing with time travel, and again, just the little things like, she, you know, her iPhone disappears, and she's like, well, because well, oh, none, of, you know, she suddenly becomes an authentic figure in the world of that period i think in the spoiler yeah, list yeah. oh my god there's a really long spoiler list for this show you're not allowed to mention exactly where and when they end up being i think we can say that some of it takes place in 80s new york right and her the depiction of 80s new york is so brilliant and it, just a little detail and the detail of the social interactions that men you know like sit huh. face next to next to women without buy or leave you know and i'm sure a lot of men still do of course but yeah. generally her her coming having to explain to the men in this show how they should behave with her 21st century from her 21st century vantage point all those little details are so well done but it's just the main thing for the main i mean and i, I thought it's a it's a brilliant to have come up with a, another device another kind of um fantastical device on top of the yeah. one of the originals who's a really clever move i think by her who she also directs this season as well she i can't remember whether she directed much of the first season um but you know she directed the finale right, of the first right. season I know that. um just just all those creative decisions i think because you know it's it, a lot of people it's this is the kind of show a lot of people said they could have left it there at the end of the first season you know yeah. why could the uh, first one ends perfectly, ended perfectly. Mm -hmm. it almost felt like it right. didn't need yeah, exactly to continue but then you see this and she's back and it and the character is so funny and entertaining and interesting and the premise is so creatively done that you absolutely should do a second series because when brilliantly talented people come up with a brilliant show <laughs> they're quite right should they have the chance to carry on making that show fair enough i mean look i have to be honest like i didn't like this as much as as season one i don't think it's quite as focused as season one and i don't think the device works quite as well but that's not to say it's bad and actually to say something's not quite as good as russian doll season one i mean it's a high bar yeah. to clear yeah. uh but i think <laughs> Almost it doesn't matter because she is such a singular screen presence, not just as that character, but just in herself, that she is endlessly entertaining and she commands every scene she's in. And just just the way she brings that very specific attitude to 
every aspect of it because it's the fish out of water element you dump her in the 1980s and she's just fucking hilarious Uh, and in fact everything she does in this is hilarious the way she kind of just lurches around like she's about to fall over grabs a cigarette off someone just smokes it snatches a newspaper off someone else like she's a force of nature Um, and so just being around her is inherently entertaining even if the device doesn't work quite as well and to say it doesn't work quite as well does not mean it does not work it actually does work it's actually really interesting I like the way it happens Uh, I like the way they kind of the work it and the boundaries they put around it but uh yeah liked it a lot we'll continue to watch this uh w- i mean i don't know if they're planning to do more of this like I, I wonder what you do next unless she's going into space for a third <laughs> season i don't really know where they go with this but um <laughs> You know, I can't emphasize enough how talented she is. And it's just at the beginning when it's like starring Natasha Leon, written by mm. Natasha Leon, directed by mm. Natasha Leon. It's like, oh, I yeah. calm down, yeah. fucking overachiever. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Give the rest of us a chance. Uh, but very, very good stuff. And The Russian Doll, of course, which does return to Netflix on Wednesday, the 20th of April. Uh, and obviously, we have reviewed absolutely everything in the world this week, but there are other things. Unbelievable. What a week. What a fucking week for TV, <laughs> is all I can say. Inside Number Nine is back on Wednesday, yep. BBC Two, with an episode which I've seen and is fantastic. And it stars Rhys Smith and Steve Pemberton. Mark Gatiss is back. So it's a proper League of Gentlemen reunion episode, effectively. And Diane Morgan. And they're all in a pedalo on a lake, is all I'm going to say. And it is <laughs> fantastic. Um, then you've got Better Call Saul, as I've already mentioned, is back. Tuesday the 19th with a double bill, I believe, for the new season. That's going to air weekly because it's basically an AMC show in America that Netflix acquired for here, for the rest of the world. So they have to show it on a weekly basis, which is probably why they never fucking promote the thing or give us screeners or anything like that, he says uh, very angrily and easily irritatedly. There's The Rising on Sky Max yep. now on Friday, which is a high concept, a woman investigating her own murder. Things. Supernatural crime Supernatural thriller. Supernatural crime thriller, mm. yeah. It's based on a Belgian series. Right. There's a thing called The King on Sky Atlantic and now on Tuesday, which in which um, is all about a pr- set in a prison. Uh, it's a, all about prison boss and gangsters and apparently it's excellent. I haven't seen it, but it's basically really, really good. The King, it's an Italian show, basically. Um, one of the best Italian shows of recent years by all accounts. Um, oh, my God, there's probably more. The final season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine drops on E4. Yes, correct. On the 20th at 9pm. Race, the second series of the Brighton set crime drama with John Sim and Richie Campbell is back on Sunday on ITV as well, which is also a pretty good show as well. I I remember that. I don't think I loved it. Okay, fine. I think that might be about it, but I mean, fucking hell. (laughs) Right. What would you pick? What is your pick of the week? Um... Chivalry, I think. It, Interesting. It's tough. It's a tough, tough one. I am obviously going to say Russian Doll, but they put everyone else put up a fair fight. I think is what I'll say. Yeah, yeah. I'd go for one of those two. Maybe Chivalry, just to be you know contrary. But uh, very, very good stuff. Okay, well, I'm slightly exhausted. I don't know about you guys. So uh, that's it for this monstrous episode. Uh, if you'd like to reward us for bringing joy to your ears, and do feel free to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your platform of choice might be. Also, feel free to follow us on social media at Pilot TV Pod uh, and give us feedback directly at James C. Dyer, at Beth K. Webb, and at Boyd Hilton, who, as you may have heard, has 80,000 followers. Uh, <laughs> Beth's dreams come true next week when we managed to get her in a room with Bill Hader for Barry Season 3 who said shamelessly petitioning for these things on the podcast never gets you anywhere uh, and Elizabeth Moss as we've already mentioned will be joining us for Apple's Shining Girls so we'll be sure to return for that so all that remains is to say 
Beth. I hope recording this show was the birthday present you wanted and felt you deserved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things is true. Uh, excellent. And Boyd, do enjoy New York. Uh, I hope it's uh, it's fun. What are you doing today? Are you going out? Or are you going shopping? Yeah, I'm going to go shopping, I think. Exactly that. I fly back this evening. So, yeah, I'm going to do some, obviously, last minute um, what you, streetwear. What are you going to get us? Streetwear shopping. <laughs> Obviously, buy some trainers for a birthday. Yeah, maybe I'll buy yeah. some trainers. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing you all in the studio hopefully next week. So that will be lots of fun. Until then, pilot out. <laughs>